to walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Let's have a look ahead to the Quad Summit in Sydney. We said at the start of our planning meeting earlier this week, uh, but by the time that meeting was over, the summit was no more. The White House, rather sheepishly, had announced Joe Biden wasn't coming to Australia. He cancelled a stopover in Papua New Guinea as well, uh, which has arguably become a bigger and more interesting story than if he'd actually shown up. Uh, Well, with us to talk about the Quad Summit that never was and some other international stories is Dr. Lavina Lee from Macquarie University and Professor James Curran of Sydney University. That's been my academic home for the past year or so. Uh, He also uh, was recently appointed the international editor of the Australian Financial Review. Uh, Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much, Nick. Um, Now, I've covered a few presidential trips in my time. I mean, travelling the White House is quite the experience. It's it's like a a small city uh, on the move. Things happen, things change, stuff happens. Um, But events this week got a bit odd. I mean, at 10.30 on Tuesday night, it's announced that Joe Biden's going to address the joint sitting of Parliament. Nine hours later, uh, it's it's off. James, um, this was a bit, bit weird. It certainly was. It certainly was. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's a clear case of... Um you know, the demands, obviously, the political demands of the president facing at home with a with a debt ceiling crisis. And, you know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has already given a sort of an X date of the 1st of June that if it's not, uh, if it's not over by then, then um, <clears throat> the cash will run out and the US will default on some of its obligations. So it's a pretty serious domestic political crisis that the president had to attend to. Um, but yes, I think if there's some uh, some sort of Australian backsides dragging along the corridors of power um, in Canberra, I think it would be the kind of hurt that they might feel that they were sort of told of the green light for the president's visit on the um, Wednesday evening and by Thursday dawn it was it was all off. So, but we've seen, I think, some fairly um, extraordinary catastrophizing about it this week, I think, Nick. Um it has been quite remarkable the way in which I think some of the most really sort of the loudest uh, sort of alliance, US alliance boosters in the Australian debate uh, have really engaged in, a, in an extraordinary round of sort of hair pulling and hand wringing about what this portends. And uh, you and I both know that uh, both Presidents Obama and President Clinton had to do the same thing. They had to pull out of Asian summits. And look, it would have been better if Biden came. There's no doubt about that. For a United States that is trying to show the resilience of its of its alliance system um, against the bullying assertiveness of China, um, it certainly would have been better for the president to show up or to send the vice president. But uh, as you say as well, not, not showing up in Papua New Guinea um, is, a, is a downer for them as well and for what it says about the US uh, presence in the Pacific uh, but I, but I think this there's, there's a kind of fragility uh, that is behind some of this catastrophizing. Um, a sense that perhaps you know is this is this the kind of American attention we're going to see in the future, where it's a bit unpredictable, where it can be sort of where it, where, where it can sort of collapse, you know, within a moment's notice. I think I think there's something to that. Lavina Lee, has, has all this been overblown? It it doesn't really matter. I mean, these things happen. Um, the quad's going to take place at the G7 summit. There'll be FaceTime with the US president for the Australian prime minister. Uh, has this become a, 
a bit sort of the reaction here a little bit overblown? Yeah, I think I'd um, I'm a, I'd agree with James on that. Um, I think uh, it does it does show a little bit of immaturity in in some senses about the reaction to it because I, I think um, one thing we we should acknowledge is that um, the quad has become quite a um, quite a fixture um, and. Uh, the quad has met a number of times at the leaders' level. Um, I think they've they've met four times virtually or in person since March 2021. Um, the quad foreign ministers have met annually since 2019, the most recent time being March 2023. And I think we we need to remember as well that there's a lot of work that uh, that goes on um, between these leaders' meetings and and. You know, the leaders' meeting is is important for for optics and showing solidarity, um, showing some of the things that um, the United States has been questioned about. That is its commitment um, to the Indo-Pacific. Um, but this doesn't detract from the fact that um, there's now really quite um, institutionalised cooperation at all all levels of government between the four countries. And this really it's it's through the bureaucracy, through the embassies. And they've now got uh, six working groups um, working on a, a range of issues like health, security, climate, critical emerging technologies, space, infrastructure, cyber. So I think we, we shouldn't uh, forget that uh, the leaders' me- meeting, in a sense, is just a, a symbol, a kind of punctuation point where they come and announce new things or um, announce how they've progressed since the last meeting, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I think what would be more concerning is if in um, maybe if, for example, the quad meeting, um, the the leaders don't meet the next time as well, or that there's no um, real deliverables that the working groups can show in the next year. James, we often think of the fear of abandonment, the line from the late, great Alan Gingell, Australia's foremost foreign policy thinker. Um, Does this kind of cancellation sort of tap into that kind of national neurosis? And especially at a time when, you know, Australia's kind of betting the house in America, isn't it, with the the AUKUS deal in it? That's right. And does it raise questions about the reliability of America as an ally? I don't think I would sort of put the the cancellation of a presidential visit quite in that category. I mean, I think there have been president uh, prime ministers before who've had to sort of cop far kind of stiffer rebukes or humiliations, if you like, from from the Americans, which have cast greater doubt over the American staying power. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, for example, blindsided John Gordon in terms of uh, advice about bombing halts in Vietnam or the withdrawal of troops. Richard Nixon famously left uh, Billy McMahon and pretty much everyone else, of course, high and dry when he announced he was going to China, left McMahon absolutely psychotic. Um, (laughs) You know, Gordon had to deal with the announcement of the Nixon Doctrine, which sort of was recalibrating America's position in Asia. Um, but yeah, I mean, this sort of goes back to my earlier point. I mean, I, I think you're, you're onto something. I mean, you know, it, it is, it is the kind of, it is the unthinkable. I mean, Peter Varghese wrote, um, earlier this week, you know, how Australians might think about dealing with a weaker America. Um, and we know that Biden, <clears throat> whilst he might not be as crude as his predecessor, Trump, is effectively the same kind of transactional president. I mean, he's asking allies to do more. So, the optics of asking your ally to do more but then not showing up, yeah, I agree. Sometimes it doesn't look good. 
I think because America's primacy at stake is at stake, because their prestige and credibility is at stake, they're going to be doing everything they can to try and allay or assuage any kind of fears that they are abandoning their allies. I think that's what they that's what they fear the most. But here the psychology, I think, is, you know, this is unthinkable. It is the unimaginable for Australia's strategic debate to contemplate a region where America's posture is changed. Even if even if, if the terms of American engagement are different, that's very difficult for Australians to sort of get their head around. And the precedent, as you know, Nick, is 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 the British link, right? Even after the fall of Singapore, <clears throat> you had two Irish Catholic Labor prime ministers try and resuscitate imperial defence. The Anglo-Australian defence relationship prospered during the 1950s, and it was only when the British decided to leave east of Suez in the late 60s that Australians thought, "Oh, well, we don't have that military relationship to rely on anymore." So, it takes a long time for these things to kind of um, sort of percolate, I think, through the Australian strategic imagination that we've got to start adjusting to a different America. Lavina, I wonder whether you are concerned that Australia has become a kind of easy cancellation, um, that Australia can be taken for granted. Jeff Bleich, who was the ambassador uh, for the United States in Australia under Barack Obama, used to describe the Australian partnership with America as the perfect relationship. It was even an upgrade from the special relationships which the, the Brits obsess about. Um, but sometimes there's a, a perfect relationship mean a somewhat servile relationship, a, a relationship you can take for granted. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's always, uh, I think, a concern um, in, uh, among the policy community. Um, and I think... A part of that worry about being abandoned um, is why Australia, I think, has tried to make itself uh, more useful to the United States, I think, in in trying to get the United States to commit uh, more to the Indo-Pacific by um, doing more ourselves. So it's correct to say that, yes, um, the United States can't can't rely anymore on its preeminence and that's why it's leaning on its allies. Uh, but Australia and Japan are the two allies that are trying to be the most useful and to enable the United States to stay in our region as much as possible. And hence why we, we see it was actually Australia that's pushing or did push for the AUKUS agreement. It wasn't the United States pushing that on us. It was us going to the Americans and saying, uh, this is what we need. We need to become more self-reliant, but we also need your your help um, to be to be a more effective alliance partner. Um, I, I do think that is that is a worry. Um, we, I think, though, let's say in this context, again, going to this idea of not overblowing this, um, I do think that um, the Quad, because it is has become more embedded um, in this particular context, going to the G7, I think, was more important. Um, as you said earlier, the, the Quad countries are still going to meet on the sidelines of the G7, but... The G7 represents the the most um, uh, highly industrialised democracies of the world. Um, They are the countries that will decide the global balance of power and whether the advantage continues to stay with the advanced liberal democracies and the strategic, economic, technological policies of major European nations um, are what what will be important for the Indo-Pacific and whether they're aligned with with our um, interests. Um, so I think the G7 is important because it does contain countries that are more undecided about where they stand on China 
um, and to a lesser extent Russia. And so it's important for uh, Australia's interests for for us to be present at the G7, but also for the United States to make the case and to uh, encourage the coordination of policy on China and also on Russia. Yeah, there's a lot of diplomacy happening at the G7. It's being held in Hiroshima. I mean, goodness, what a place to, to focus diplomatic minds, the setting, of course, for the, the first atomic bomb uh, that was ever exploded. Um, a lot of news coming out of, of Japan. Uh, we're expecting Vladimir Zelensky to attend. Uh, Biden has signalled that F-16 fighter jets uh, will be given uh, to Ukraine in the war against uh, Russia. And James, I mean, what started out as an economic grouping is looking more and more like a a democratic alliance. Yeah, well, it certainly fits um, the kind of narrative that uh, President Biden has been spinning from the beginning of his presidency, which is uh, that that, that this is a great uh, existential struggle between the uh, autocracies and democracies. So in that sense, the kind of um, the rallying together and the symbolism, of course, is will be will be fed into that and uh, and and also into this kind of really what's becoming quite entrenched uh, binary of the sort of the new cold war. But um, of course, I think you know there is there, nothing is orthodox these days. When is it ever orthodox? Nothing is neat. Um, there are lots of sort of overlapping organisations. There are, as Lavina said, there are some countries, I mean, there will be nervous eyes, I would have thought, in the G7 meeting uh, being cast towards, or some nervous eyes might be cast towards Emmanuel Macron, given his recent comments on Taiwan and what he thought the EU's position should be on Taiwan when he came out of China a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Canadians will probably be spitting chips about the sort of tensions they've been experiencing with China of late. I think China is, is poking them in the eye and kicking them in the shins. The Italians will be being asked as to whether or not they're going to renew the Belt and Road initiative that they signed on to under the previous Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conti's. But also let's remember too that, um, you know, India, of course, which so much romantic faith is invested in, in terms of its membership of the Quad, is also a member of the China and Russia-led Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. It hasn't condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's continued to get cheap oil from Russia and it's continued its rupee-ruble exchange. So, you know, yes, there'll be great photos of seven leaders waving their hands with the backdrop of Hiroshima, um, but but the world, I think, is is, is far more messy and far more um, unorthodox um, than we've seen for a long time. Well, you raised the question of India there, and of course, Narendra Modi is coming to Australia uh, next week, uh, Lavina. Um, yeah. I'm I'm intrigued by India. I mean, I remember the days uh, in the Bush administration when they actually didn't let Narendra Modi into the country uh, because of the Gujarat right. riots in, in 2002. Now the red carpet is being laid out for him for obvious reasons. I mean, America uh, sees India as a, as a counterweight to China. Last month, it became the most populous country in the world. Um, is that realistic? I mean, is, can we regard India now as a very useful way of, of containing China? Um, look, I, I think obviously the, the Russia relationship um, is, is an issue. Um, it, it raises big question marks about how reliable India can be in certain contexts. Um, now, I, I personally, my view is um, th- that relationship is a worry. Um, India is pretty much beholden to Russia because it, it relies on um, Russia for about 60% of its ongoing defence needs. 
Um, so if you can imagine how, how deeply entrenched Russian equipment um, is in the Indian uh, psyche and, and uh, sorry, I shouldn't say psyche, but, you know, that, that dependency will go on for decades to come. Um, so I think in, in India, um, it's quite a pragmatic type of um, approach to Russia um, that there is no easy pathway to redirect or de-risk um, their defence dependency on Russia. But they have been trying to make uh, inroads into that by trying to um, diversify towards the United States and to the European countries in particular. Uh, but that will take quite some time to, to play out. And I think what's not also um, emphasised a lot is that Russia actually provides India with a lot of cooperation on um, nuclear technology um, in the defence space. So just as we have now gone to the United States and Britain um, to help us develop um, submarine technology that's nuclear powered, um, India did that with Russia uh, many years ago. Uh, and no other country will do that for India. So that's, that's the thing that, that holds them to, to Russia. But what I would say when you said um, initially your question was how reliable will India be, I think in regards to China, it's a different story. Um, and that actually has caused some in the Indian establishment to think, all right, Russia is now becoming even more and more beholden to China. It's now become so isolated and this trajectory will continue that it will eventually um, become almost like a vassal state to China. And if that's the case, how reliable a supplier will, will Russia be? Um, will it actually be lent on by China at some future stage if they, uh, as you know, India and China uh, continue to have a border conflict um, that, that has started in 2020 and, and is continuing the last time they had a clash was only December of 2022. Right. Um, so really, um, I think the long-term traje trajectory will be that India will have to move towards more towards the United States and a Western coalition, especially when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. Dr Lavina Lee, uh, Senior Lecturer at Macquarie University and the historian James Curran, who's the new international editor of the Australian Financial Review. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, up next, who's queen? Netflix and Egypt argue over the new series on Cleopatra. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.